I told you, he is safe. You can run to him. It's been great to worship with you this morning. I invite you to open your copy of scripture with me to John chapter 1 this morning. John chapter 1. And uh, if you, I, I, I trust that you all received a copy of the study handout. It's going to be a little different this morning as far as a format of a sermon, but I trust it will be nonetheless helpful to us all. And uh, if I were you, I would also find 1 Peter and drop up a page marker somewhere in 1 Peter or a ribbon marker from your Bible. We're going to go there several times this morning, as well as to several places throughout the Gospels. But for right now, John chapter 1. I don't think anyone here would debate a statement I'm getting ready to make. And the statement is this. Great privilege brings great struggle and great responsibility. Would you, would you agree with that statement? Great privilege brings with it great struggle and great responsibility. We're coming back now to our series through Peter, and we're doing a series of biographical sermons about the life of Peter from all the Gospels, all four Gospels, so that we can understand him even more when we go to study every line and every word of his epistle, 1 Peter. That statement is what I want to launch with this morning. With great privilege comes great struggle and great responsibility. We see, we see this often in the world of the military. We see this lived out often in the world of politics. But we definitely see it also in the world of athletics. And as the curtains are peeled back, you're going to immediately recognize this athlete. His name is Lance Armstrong, and he's exhibit A in our introduction today of how great privilege brings with it great struggle and great responsibility. He's an amazing athlete, has been his, his whole adult life. Let me tell you some things about Lance Armstrong. He won seven consecutive Tour de France victories from 1999 to 2005. Uh, he was on the United States Olympic Committee. Uh, he was their Sportsman of the Year for 1999, 2001, 2002, and 2003. Great privilege. He was the Associated Press Male Athlete of the Year in 2002, 2003, 2004, and 2005. Great privilege. He was considered the world's most outstanding athlete, and he received such an award that went by the title of the Jesse Owens International Trophy in 2000. Uh, the Sports Ethics Fellows uh, of the in Institute for International Sport gave him an award in 2003. He received the ESPY Award for Best Male Athlete in 2003, 2004, 2005, 2006. Are you getting the point that he has great privilege? He was the ABC's Wide World of Sports Athlete of the Year in 1999. And of course, Sports Illustrated needs to chime in. He was Sports Illustrated Magazine's Sportsman of the Year in 2002. Great, great privilege. 
But with great privilege comes great struggle and great responsibility. You see, Lance Armstrong was disqualified from each of the Tour de France races and banned from cycling for the rest of his life for doping offenses. This was leveled at him by the United States Anti-Doping Agency in 2012. In June of 2012, the USADA charged him with having used illicit performance-enhancing drugs, and on August 24, 2012, it announced a lifetime ban from all competition applicable to all sports which follow the World Anti-Doping Agency Code, as well as the stripping of all titles won since August 1998. This report concluded that Lance Armstrong enforced, quote, the most sophisticated, professionalized, and successful doping program that sport has ever seen. And on October 22, 2012, the Union Cyclist International, the sport's governing body, announced its decision to accept the USADA's findings. Armstrong chose not to appeal the decision to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, and in January 2013, Lance Armstrong admitted doping in a television interview conducted by Oprah Winfrey, despite having made denials throughout his whole career. It's a sad exhibit, but it's a graphic reminder that with great privilege, comes great struggle and great responsibility. That's just an example from the world of sports. We could have used examples from politics as well as the military world, but that's enough of the secular. Because I see this also lived out in the life of the Apostle Peter. With great privilege comes great struggle and great responsibility. And so what I want to do this morning, a little bit different approach to this time, is I want to identify with you from the pages of the Gospels, and even the book of Acts, I want to identify with you four places of privilege that Peter enjoyed. But along with each of those four, and there's more than four, but we're going to focus on the four big ones. With each of these places of privilege, Peter too faced great struggle. And great responsibility. And it would serve us well to learn as we study his life, as we lean into his moments in order to get to know him better. But as we look at these four places of privilege, I, I need to say something to those of us in the room and watch it. They might look a little more familiar than you might anticipate. You might be able to relate to them more than you're planning. Just be careful as we look at these four places of privilege in Peter's life. The place of privilege. First of all, the first privilege. I call it called out. This was his privilege. privilege. He was called out, and by that I mean his eternal identity. Once Jesus intersected with the life of Peter... Things would never be the same, not just for the rest of Peter's life, but because of our Lord's contact with him and ownership of him. 
It is a new identity that will, that will press into eternity. It's fascinating. Uh, in that box, I'd encourage you to put down a few reminders to yourself as far as um, where, how he was called out. It was a threefold calling that we've looked at before. The first one is his call to salvation. We've seen this already in this series in John chapter 1. Your Bible's open to that. And I just want to remind you again that it was Andrew who went and got his brother Peter and brought him to Jesus. Verse 39, he said to them, come and you'll, oh this, excuse me, one of the two, verse 40, who heard John speak and followed him, Jesus, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And watch this. So Andrew found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. First contact, right here. And Jesus looked at Simon, looked at Peter, and he said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which translated is Jesus. That's the first face-to-face, eye-to-eye between Jesus of Nazareth and his newly minted disciple, Peter. What is going on here? When Jesus names him, he's, he's, he's indicating by the naming that he now owns him. He owns him. I believe this is the point of Peter's salvation. But there was a second call. Jot this one down in that box. It's Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. Uh, You can also find the account of this in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I'm just going to go to the Matthew passage with you. Matthew chapter 4, verses 19 Uh, excuse me, 18 through 22. Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. You say, well, didn't something else happen there? Yes, Luke reminds us in his account in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, that the whole reason that Peter followed him, now leaving a vocation to be, if you will, with Jesus constantly, was because Jesus had used Peter's boat for, fishing, for speaking, and then went out, even though Peter caught nothing all night, told Peter how to fish, the professional fisherman, a great catch came in, you remember the story, and then the other boat had to come and help bring the fish in, And what does Peter do? According to Luke chapter 5, he falls on his face before Jesus and he says, depart from me. I am a sinful man. What's going on there? Well, I believe this isn't their first meeting. But I also believe that this is where Peter starts to understand the, the, the depth out of which he was rescued by Jesus when he saved him. And in his attempt to separate himself from someone so holy and so powerful, God himself, Jesus says to him, no, I don't want you to push away from me. I want you to go with me. So the first call is a call to salvation. The second call is the call to being a disciple. But there's another call as well. And you'll see it here in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, 
verse 1, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean disciples to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who was called Peter. And then he goes on to name the other 11. So we have here Jesus entering into Peter's life. Peter didn't go looking for Jesus. Jesus saved Peter, Jesus saved Andrew, and then was on a mission to save Peter as well. But it wasn't just a call. It wasn't just a a rescue from hell. This was also a, a, a life that was now owned by Jesus, and Jesus wanted him with them as a disciple constantly. But then out of all the disciples, the great growing crowd of disciples, Peter's one of them, he has a third call where he is singled out with 11 other men to be up close to Jesus. One of 12. An apostle. As we go to the future, to the kingdom that will be here on the earth for a thousand years, and we get a vision of the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven, we see that in the very structure of of that kingdom are named the 12 apostles. They're still bearing that name so far into the future. You say, what are you trying to say? I'm just trying to say that this is a place of great privilege. Peter has been called out and given an eternal identity. He belongs to Jesus, He's with Jesus. And so much so that at some point he's going to be sent out from Jesus to spread the news of the kingdom. That's a a significant place of privilege, if you ask me. Right? Can you relate? If there's been a time when Jesus opened the eyes of your heart to see not only your sinfulness, but his beauty as a savior, his sufficiency as a savior. He's opened your eyes to see that he is God. And everything he claimed was true. And everything he did proved it. Has there been a time when he's opened your eyes and he, to see not just your sin and his beauty, but what he accomplished? He died for sin on the cross. He rose from the dead. And to all who will call upon him, and that includes you, He'll save you. Paul puts it this way in Romans. He says, if we confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. If that's your story, you're in a place of great privilege. If you haven't noticed, many that you interacted with last week are not. They haven't come to to faith in Christ, and we have to add the word yet. But you did. Why? Is it because you're smarter? No, it's because Jesus came for you. It's a place of great privilege being called out. But great privilege brings with it great struggle, great danger. You say, what's the danger of this privilege? The danger, in one word, is short-sightedness. Short-sightedness. See, what do you mean by that? Well, some people, including Peter, 
when they understand that they belong to Jesus, for, for some reason he chose to set his electing love on them. And he gave them life at a point in time. They belong to Jesus. And not only do they belong to Jesus, but they're serving Jesus, and they're being sent out by Jesus to participate in the kingdom work of the gospel. That's a place of high privilege. But with Peter and other people like him and like us, sometimes when we know that the future is nailed down, that Jesus claims us and we belong to him, we can get too focused on the now. We're like, wow, everything's great. I have eternal life, but I, uh, everything should go well here until then. And there's a short-sightedness that kind of settles into so many Christians where their focus is on the temporal, the now. And they want everything to go smoothly. I'm a Christian. Why do bad things happen in my life? And we protest. There's a short-sightedness to us. We focus on relationships that go awry, or we focus on hardships that we go through, or pain we have to live with. And we're like, well, you know, if I belong to Jesus, and I have such a high calling, if you will, why does hard stuff happen to me? What that, real, what that reveals is a short-sightedness on our part. You know, if we went to Matthew chapter 16, as a matter of fact, let's go there. Go to Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus asked his disciples in verse 13, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Matthew chapter 16. And what's the answer? Verse 14. They said, well, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And and of all people, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, he's singling Peter out here, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ, the Messiah. Well, Peter doesn't mind that kind of talk. I gave the right answer. Did you guys hear that? And on top of that, that wasn't for me. That was the Father that gave that to me. Sign Peter up for everything from verse 20 and earlier. But Peter doesn't like what comes in verse 21. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day Here's Peter, he's going to fix that. I mean, what's this talk of suffering? I thought we were going to reign. I thought you were the Messiah, the King, and there's a kingdom coming, and we're going to be with you in that. What's this talk of death? I'll, I'll step in and fix this. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen. What's Peter doing here? He's demonstrating short-sightedness. 
wait, man, I thought we were in the program and we're going to win. We're not only going to overthrow Rome, but we got, a, we got a whole kingdom thing coming in. What you, what, what's this talk of you dying? It's a short-sightedness. You know, we could take time, I'm just asking you to jot it down, to go to John chapter 18. Even right at the end, right before the cross, when Jesus is being arrested in John 18, they come to arrest Jesus, and who's the one that's swinging the sword around? Peter. It's like, wait a minute. You guys can't take him and try him and kill him. He's been saying stuff like this is going to happen. I guess it's up to me to stop it. Because I'm all about the now. Right now. He's the king. The kingdom's coming. What is that? That short-sightedness. And you know, it's not uncommon for disciples like us to struggle with that as well. It's like, well, I belong to Jesus. But I protest the suffering and the difficulties I have to go through in my marriage or with my body or with my job or in my ministry. And it's, it's as if we think that since we belong to Jesus, everything's going to be perfect. That's short-sightedness. Short-sighted people always look for shortcuts out of trials. That's the danger of privilege, short-sightedness. I mean, just when we're suffering now, and we will suffer, our Lord didn't hide that. Even on the Sermon on the Mount, he made that clear. But whenever we're suffering now, it's what's been promised to us for eternity that pulls us through. See? So how do we steward this privilege? Just stay tethered to heaven. Between now and heaven, there's going to be suffering. Even with your high calling as a child of God, there's going to be suffering. So how do I get through that? Are there any shortcuts? No. None. But the promises of eternity are out there still too. And your Heavenly Father will keep those promises. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 19, remember what Peter asked in verse 27? Matthew Chapter 19, and in verse 27, Peter, Peter said to him, our Lord's going to work on this point with Peter. Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then shall there be for us? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, that's future, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my namesake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. One of the other gospel writers adds in the middle of that phrase, suffering as well. Being called out is great privilege. If we're not careful, we'll focus on how easy and and peaceful, everything's supposed to be right now until we get to heaven. And Jesus is like, no, I'm telling you, they're going to be suffering. That's what will pull you through is the hope of heaven. You say, did Peter learn this lesson? Did he learn to steward this? Well, I believe so. Because of what he wrote one day in 1 Peter chapter 1. 
in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, writing to a suffering group of believers. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, and it's reserved in heaven for you. High privilege! And then he says in verse 5, though, but for now you are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, look at this, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Yeah, he learned. And he would write that towards the end of his life. Called out. A high place of privilege. Well, there's a second one. The second one I want you to see is, it should be a number two, sorry about that. It says standing out. This is the second one, standing out. What is this? This is all about leadership and influence. It's not just... Um, it's not just that Jesus owns you, your identity is wrapped up in Jesus, but now you're finding yourself in, in, the, in the will of the Lord moving up a chain of influence as a disciple of Jesus. As a matter of fact, we have lists of the apostles in Mark chapter 3, Luke chapter 6, and Acts chapter 1. And all of them look a lot like what we're going to find here in Matthew chapter 10. Move over to Matthew chapter 10. And I want you to notice something. There's going to be several groups of apostles clumped together in every list. And the first names of those lists are going to be very consistent as well. In Matthew chapter 10... Again, I read the first verse where he summoned his 12. Luke will say in Luke 6, this is when he called them apostles. And Matthew will pick up on that kind of language in verse 2. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. First group of four. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Did you notice there's three groups of four? And it's interesting, as our Lord has worked in the inspiration of Scripture in all four lists, Peter's group is listed first, and in every list, Peter is always the head of his group of four. He is listed first. And it's interesting, and I underlined this in my Bible, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 2, it says, the first. This is protos in the Greek, and, it, and it's talking everything about rank. He was just an apostle like the others, but his influence and, and the footprint and, and his energy and his zeal shined. It's called standing out. And it doesn't just happen with apostles. Those of you who are in Christ, you've accepted his free gift of eternal life, you're a disciple. God is going to place you from time to time in different settings within your family, different settings within your your ministries, different settings 
in your job, different settings, perhaps in a homeowner's association. He's going to put you in places at different points in different capacities with different personalities where your influence is going to start to shine. And people start to look to you for leadership and for influence. That's a place of high privilege. And I wonder right now if you could write down two or three areas, either right now or in the recent past, that that's been true of you. But with such high privilege of standing out, there's also the danger of that privilege. What's the danger of standing out? Forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. You say, what do you mean forgetfulness? Well, sometimes, probably many times, more frequently than we want to admit, when God gives us uh, an, an, an elevated perch of influence and servant leadership, sometimes it's ironically kind of easy to forget the others who are watching you and making decisions based on decisions you make. Mom and dad. Wife. Husband. Pastor manager, employee. You see, as we get more influence for the sake of putting the kingdom on display and the spread of the gospel, we can forget that people are watching us and making decisions based on what we say. In, in, in Matthew chapter 26, this is on uh, the same evening as his betrayal. We see an example of this in Peter's life. Matthew 26, verse 33. Verse 32, after I have been raised, this is Jesus talking, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. In other words, I'm going to die. This, I knew this was coming. I've been telling you about it, and it's happening. Look at verse 32. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though all these disciples, these other 11 guys, may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, Peter, you will deny me three times. He's not going to let it go. Verse 35, Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And look at the last sentence of this, cha- of the, of this verse. And all the disciples said the same thing too. They looked up, they heard Peter being told by the Lord that he was going to betray him. And Peter says, never! Even if all these other guys run away from you, I'm going to stay faithful. And all the disciples are pointing at Peter and say, yeah, what he said, that's what we're going to do too. They were watching him. He was a leader. Even after our Lord's resurrection, when he's appearing in John chapter 21 to his disciples and eating fish with them, and restoring Peter. We're going to talk a lot about that later on in this series, by the way. What a scene that is. In John 21, it says, After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon, Peter, and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together and Simon Peter said to them I'm going fishing and they said we're going to go with you if Peter's doing it it's the right call 
And I think Peter wasn't realizing that as we read about accounts like this in the Gospels. Even after the cross, before this manifestation we're going to read in John chapter 21, verse 4 and following. I mean, Peter, Peter's got his back to the other disciples, it seems. He's facing Jesus. He's, uh, before the cross, we see him facing Jesus. John MacArthur says if Jesus ever stopped for a moment, Peter would bump into his back. He was right there. But sometimes you can get comfortable having your back to those that you're supposed to be leading. Forget them. Lack awareness of your influence. You see, we can see the sign on the office door and the name on the business card, but we forget the eyes that are on us. That's the danger of the privilege of standing out as a leader. You say, well, how do I steward this privilege? The stewardship is this. Face those who you lead. Face those who you lead. Stop showing them your back. If God has called you to be a parent, he's given you children, don't live your life with your back facing them, only to face them when there's a problem. If you have entered the marriage of covenant, do not show your back to the one that you are one flesh with and are to be completing. Face those that you lead. Lean into them. Again, in John chapter 21 still, that scene on the beach. You remember these verses, verses 15 through 17? So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, here he goes to work on Peter again, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you Love me. And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, Shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Jesus is reminding, if you're going to be a leader, if you're going to be a servant leader under me, then you have to have a concern for those and face those and know the needs of those and move towards those that you are to be leading. You don't run from them. You don't disengage from them. We're going to say a lot more about this scene even in a few moments. It's interesting in Acts chapter 1, on the day that our Lord ascended and they have to find a replacement for Judas, who is it that stands up and leads these guys? It's Peter. He's facing them. You say, did Peter really learn this lesson of how to steward being a standout leader? Did he learn it? I believe he did. Because late in his life, he would write these words to husbands and how to lead their wives. Verse 7 of 1 Peter 3 You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker since she's a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. He says, 
Husbands, you're supposed to lead your wives. Do it by facing them, moving towards them, treating them with honor. Peter got it. You say, just on that verse? No, I read in chapter 4 of 1 Peter these words. Verses 10 and 11, written to all the Christians. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Face the people you're leading. You say all the way to the top, well, yeah, um, Peter even addresses the elders, the leaders of the church in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. And Peter's telling them, face those you lead. He writes, therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that's to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your, child, your charge, but proving to be examples of the flock. He says to the husbands, he says to everyone in the church, he says to the leaders of the church, face those you lead. Engage them. Well, there's a third. These last two will go a little quicker. And that should be a number three. Sorry about that. Singled out is what I call this one. This is training stewardship. I want you to go with me. We'll be back to Mark or to First Peter in a moment. Go with me to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. And you're going to see a pattern start early on here in Mark's gospel, and it will survive the entire gospel. This pattern will. Mark chapter 5, and look with me to verse 35. While he was still speaking, they came to the house of the synagogue officials saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. Watch verse 37. And Jesus allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother, the brother of James. So you have these 12 apostles, but now out of these 12 apostles, Jesus is saying, not all of you can even see what I'm going to be doing now. And he takes that top group of the apostles. And you're going to see that again in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 is the transfiguration. Jesus says, just the four of you can go with me. When you go to Mark chapter 13, verse 3, when Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, this is the final week of his life before the cross, they were sitting opposite the temple, and Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately, just the four of them. They're having a little eschatology talk with the teacher. And they say in verse 4, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? I mean, it's called a private seminary class there. See, what's going on? You're going to see it again in chapter 14, by the way, as these are the four that are invited to the, to the Garden of Gethsemane within earshot of our Lord as he cries out to his Father. You see, it's one thing to be a leader, but it's another thing to, to become um, singled out for the sake of not only what you're going to, to see, but what you're going to be taught by the Master. You're not just going to be taken in as a student. Now uh, you're going to be transformed because of the up-close and personal contact you have with Jesus and his word and his power. You're going to see things that even the other apostles won't, won't see. 
They were singled out. This is a training stewardship. And this is a high place of privilege. And by the way, let me tell you, there's one of these four, Peter, out of those top four, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, it's only Peter of those four that get out, gets out of the boat and walks on the water someday. Remember that? I mean, he's really, he's, he's, he's wanting to get all he can from Jesus. He wants to, to, to not just get content and nouns and verbs. He wants the person and the wisdom. And Jesus himself has singled them out on these different occasions during his three-year ministry. We read those stories, and I think we can relate. We haven't walked on the water. We weren't there for the transfiguration, but in a sense we were as we read it. We see it. Uh, We weren't there firsthand to to see that that child raised from the dead. But in a sense we were, because we can read it. Yeah, everything that Peter saw privately, you and I get to see every time we read through Scripture. Everything that Peter heard and recorded is recorded in the Gospels, we get to hear as well as we read it. We have an amazing privilege in knowing Jesus personally, in a relationship, and in a thriving way with our access to this book. His Spirit gives us wisdom, not only to understand it, but how to apply it. And strength to do that. You and I have been singled out to be trained as well. But there's a danger that comes with that. The danger is familiarity. Familiarity. You see, we can get so familiar to the access we have to the person of Christ. We can get so familiar with the access we have through the Son to the Father. We can get used to the reality that the Holy Spirit indwells us and seals us to the day of redemption. We can get so used and familiar with the fact that we have scripture in so many different translations lining our shelves and stuffing our bedstands and plugging up the the memory on our phones. We can become so familiar with him and with the access that we have that we can start, like Peter, to lose our hesitation and our awe. That's the danger of this familiarity. So familiar and relaxed did Peter get around Jesus that when he wakes up on the Mount of Transfiguration with his brother and James and John, and as they wake up, they see Jesus transformed with his heavenly glory, his light His clothes are radiating light. And he's talking to Moses and Elijah. And as Peter rubs his eyes and he gets the scene out here and he figures it out, he's the first one to speak up. He's interrupting. Let this sink in. Peter's interrupting a conversation going on between Moses, Jesus, and Elijah. He's too familiar. He's talking during the transformation, the transfiguration. And even in John chapter 21, after his resurrection, when they were there on that beach, we looked at it a few moments ago, where they're having fish and Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me? He's restoring Peter. We're going to do a whole message on that scene. 
But right after that scene, Jesus says, um, you're going to suffer, Peter. That stuff you didn't like doing before and you always objected to my going through suffering, you're going to suffer. And Peter, in that tender moment, interrupts Jesus again. And he says, well, what about him? And he points to John. And our Lord's like, I'll take care of John. John will do John. Peter needs to do what is ordained for Peter. The danger here is familiarity. I greatly appreciate a book written by Paul Tripp to pastors. And he doesn't have gloves on. It's gloves off, bare knuckle, talk to pastors. The name of the book is Dangerous Calling. Listen to Paul Tripp talk to pastors and beyond pastors to you. What powerful words of warning to everyone. You've spent so much time in Scripture that its grand redemptive narrative with its expansive wisdom, it just doesn't excite you anymore. You've spent so much time exegeting the atonement that you can stand at the foot of the cross with little weeping and scant rejoicing. You've spent so much time discipling others that you are no longer amazed at the reality of having been chosen to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You've spent so much time unpacking the theology of Scripture that you've forgotten that its end game is personal holiness. You've spent so much time in strategic local church ministry planning that you've lost your wonder at the sovereign planner that guides your every moment. And you've spent so much time meditating on what it means to lead others in worship, but you have little private awe. It's all because so regular and normal that it fails you, it fails to move you anymore. In fact, there are sad moments when the wonder of grace can barely get your attention in the midst of your busy ministry schedule. Wow. You say, it must be hard being a pastor. I'm one of you. The ground is level at the cross. I'm just another disciple worshiping and growing with you. And I think we all need to admit that with the amazing access we have to the will and the person of God, his word, the more we must battle familiarity. You say, well, how do we steward this? Just be committed to relearning the basics. That's it. Be committed to relearning the basics the beautiful doctrine of redemption. In John chapter 21, remember our Lord asked Jesus three times, do you love me? And the answer to Peter's reply is, feed my sheep. I mean, that's the basics. He's taking Peter, after all he's seen, after all he's experienced, after all he's done through delegated authority, he's taking Peter back to the basics. He says, Love me and serve others. Love me and serve others. That's the first and second great command. And I'm taking you back there, Peter. Stay there. And make that what you marvel over. Peter, there's never graduation from being a disciple. There's never a graduation from the basics. You say, did Peter learn that? He did. 
Because shortly before his death, he would write these words in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you, reader, of these things. Even though you already know them, and you've been established in the truth which is present with you, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. He says, I'm going to remind you, remind you, remind you of the basics. Why? Because you're in a place of privilege, and I don't want your familiarity to lose the awe for you. And then we close with the fourth one. It, too, should say number four now. I call this one stepping out. Stepping out. See, what do you mean by that? Well, someone like Peter and someone like us, who has the place of privilege of being called out and owned by Jesus, and then standing out, having influence for Jesus, and being singled out for proximity and instruction directly from God himself, Every once in a while, he's going to send you out. He's going to give you an assignment to step out and, 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 and penetrate or uh, establish a beachhead in another region or in someone else's life. There's going to be an incursion that you're going to lead for the sake of the gospel to a group of people or to an individual. That's a place of high privilege. We're talking here pioneer ministry, whether it's to, to an unreached people group, unengaged people group, or whether it's to the barista at Starbucks. You're called to step out and take the gospel to them. Hmm. You know, it's Peter in Matthew chapter 16 that is told about the keys of the kingdom. He'll use those keys. He'll use the key to unlock the gospel to the to the Jews, if you will, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Peter will reach for the other key in Acts chapter 10 and open the door, be used to open the door to the Gentiles there with Cornelius. I think you can relate to this one too. Because you know people who have yet to come to a saving knowledge of God. That's a place of privilege to be entrusted with being an ambassador. But it carries with it a danger. The danger is your baggage. Peter had some baggage. It's true that leaders and people that leave, an, leave a footprint and, and an impact have strengths that are unique to them that help them leave a unique impact. That's true. Peter's no exception, neither are you. But sometimes those very strengths, and Peter's was his, his dogged faithfulness to the law and to the Jews, and that's why he wanted to overthrow the corrupt system of Rome, the corrupt system that Jesus taught him about what was going on in the temple and bring in the king, the Messiah. He was just loyal. He had that as a strength, but that strength can become an obstacle in ministry. You see, before Peter is used by God to unlock the kingdom to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, God's got to give him a vision. He takes him to Simon's housetop, remember this? And a sheet comes out of the sky and in this vision, and it's full of unclean animals. And the Lord says to him, kill and eat. And Peter says, I can't do that. I can't do that. That would make me unclean, and I've been keeping all the rules, man. I, I've been really careful. This is, this is my area of strength. I, I, I set my mind to something, and I don't want to... 
And so three times the sheet comes out of the heaven in this vision. He says, eat up. And don't call something unclean that I now call clean. Peter had to go through that from our Lord's hand so that he would be willing to go to the house, into the house of the Gentiles at Cornelius' house. It's strange, the very thing that we're supposed to be doing in taking the gospel hits a roadblock and it's often our, our refusal, our baggage, our stubbornness. We don't like being around people like that. We don't like going to that part of Washtenaw County. Um, we don't approve how these people are parading and, 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 and doing graffiti and forcing us to talk in their language. We don't like that, so we just want to say, you know what, that's baggage. we got to take the gospel to them. So how do we steward this? Look at every person through the lens of the gospel. Peter got it in Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16. He's like, oh, I get it. God's saying that uh, I need to drop that Jewish unclean thing with the animals and with people. I need to see them through the lens of the gospel. You say, well, did that stick with Peter? Did he understand it? He'll struggle a few times with that still yet in the future. One which we know of is in Galatians, and we will look at that carefully in this series. But he did write these words. In 1 Peter chapter 2, that tells me he got it. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says to his readers, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's not just written to Jews, but also living words to Gentiles. We are on mission so that we can tell others with impartial zeal that they too can be saved. Four places of privilege. As we look at Peter, we marvel that the place of privilege is also a place of great struggle. And as we lean into him, we see the eternal identity, the leadership influence, the training stewardship, and the pioneer ministry. We can relate on every point. We're not apostles, but we are believers because of the word of the apostles. And so I like the words of John Piper when he says, don't waste your privilege, man. Don't waste your privilege. Stay tethered, as Peter would eventually. Stay tethered to heaven, face those you lead, be committed to relearning the basics, and look at every person without exception, every people group, every location, through the lens of the gospel. I think A.W. Tozer is correct. He said, only a disciple, someone who is vigilant over their own advantage and struggles, only they can make disciples. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us again a window into the life of Peter. How you singled him out and worked on him relentlessly, doing your good and at times painful work in his life to shape it for your glory. 
and reminding all of us who follow and read these passages that you work on us with such grace as well. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the privilege. Thank you for the danger that keeps us watchful. And thank you for teaching us how to steward every privilege, every blessing we have in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.